You're listening to a download from the outdoorstation.co.uk. Number 407. Hello and welcome back once again to The Outdoor Station, your one-stop shop for audio and video entertainment for the self-powered traveller. Online, on internet radio, on smartphones, on smart TV, you can now find us virtually anywhere, on Now TV and on Apple TV, either via the iTunes apps or the very popular TuneIn radio app, which means you can stream our content to your phone or tablet or TV virtually anywhere without having to download anything. Of course, all this information with the appropriate links are on the outdoorstation.co.uk website, along with a vast library of video and audio content, all of which is going to expand rapidly very soon. We also have a newsletter section where you can now suggest future content and places and people of interest, which I will be including in future content, either on YouTube or audio format, or probably both. A few people who have joined recently include David LaHunt, Nathan Lahr, Bill Goodrich, Colin Shaw, Mark Hundry, Graham Faithful, Warren Saunders. I need to talk to you, Warren. You and Esther, everybody wants to know what it's like getting back to reality after your round-the-world cycle trip. Tom Watkinson, Rob Housem. Rob, hope you're keeping well. I look forward to seeing you again, perhaps in Scotland, when you come back over from the States. Kirsty Merriman, Jane Jennifer, Steve Atwood, to name but a few. They have suggested people or businesses to chat with should include Alkit, DD Hammocks and True Mountain, along with many others. There's been quite a few campsites of interest mentioned and various people to chat with, including Keith Foskett. Now, I don't know if people remember that, but if you go back to podcast number 352 and 353, I chat with Keith about the Camino Santiago, the PCT and the Appalachian Trail. Uh, They've also suggested Nikki Spinks, who is an ultra runner, Pete Jones and Jasmine Paris, all of which are on my contact list right now. So let's now return to the second part of my conversation with David Broom. We pick up on South Uist as his adventure continues to Butt of Lewis in the north. Not only do we discuss his trip, but also his thoughts on gear and why he took what he took, safety and the emotional reward of being in such a wild, remote part of the UK. The top end of South Uist, there's no way to avoid this. There's this, there's quite a section of road running, um, and then that takes us through yet another island, which is Benbecula, um, which, it, I mean, they're all lovely places to be, but it, it did detract a little bit from the purpose and the and the quality of the trip, which was to to enjoy these these wild places. But um, but that's okay. Um, you run through a few little settlements. You see some of the more of the sort of human history of this landscape. As you're jogging along these roads, you can see the remains of some of the black houses, some of these sort of late medieval uh, dwellings that are now um, unoccupied and slowly sort of crumbling back into into the landscape. Um, and yeah, as you're jogging along, just thinking, well, you know. What were these landscapes mm. like? You know, and I can't, I can't pass one of those uh, old kind of ruined dwellings 
without just wondering, so what happened here? Who happened here? Was this a place of happiness? Was it a place mm-hmm. of, uh, of sadness? And, uh, yeah, it's sort of jogging along the road. So, um, just trying to, uh, you know, trying to, to fill in those, those little bits of the... Did you come across any brocks at all? Uh, yes. Um, and I purposefully put in a few detours, um, onto my route. So before, so maybe one thing that I should have said earlier on is that before that the planning of a, of a, of a trip like this is not just, um, linking all of the hills or linking particular bits of landscape for the sake of the, of the landscape itself. I did quite a bit of research. So I read quite a lot of books about the, the human history, the natural history, the geology of, of the place. So, and by and I think that that's a critical stage in the sort of planning process because by going through all of that information, I could pick out that there were a few locations that I really, really wanted to see. Mm. And uh, and Brochs, yes, they're, they're one of several types of uh, sort of historic and prehistoric habitation that that I picked up on by, as I say, by doing a bit of research beforehand. And just pop them on the um, on the map, and then use them to influence my 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 route. What did you think of them? Because I I was to, to be honest, I hadn't been aware of rocks until a couple of years ago. Which which if people aren't aware of them, uh, is a is a medi- medieval construction of some serious note, which looks from a distance. Well, it appears to me it looks like a, a an, an enlarged chimney. Would you say? An yeah. industrial chimney almost from the distance, but actually when you get to it, it's a layered structure, beautifully manufactured out of stone, um, almost with its own central heating system. Uh, well, that's how it appears on the archaeologists uh, uh, consider it would have been. But what was your take on it? Yeah, well, they are. They're fortified houses, really. Um, I think the, 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 their opinions are divided on whether the fortification was necessary for defence or deliberate as a way of uh as a status as a a, a matter of status but they're all very sort of enigmatic you know you go to these places and uh and and you see you know there'll be little little sort of niches in the in the brick in Mm. the in the in in the um stonework places where you know they would have kept things and little defensive positions um but one of the interesting things about the Brocks on Uist, for example, is you'll notice from this map, there's, there's an example of one that I didn't visit, but they all tend to be on hill lochs in Uist, whereas up on the, the, the more northern islands on the outer Hebridean chain, they tend to be more coastal, so perhaps more defensive. But these inland Brocks on North Uist were really quite spooky places because mm. they're in as you can see they're very very remote locations and a lot of them are in really good condition yeah yeah so you know as you as you say from a distance they have an almost industrial sort of look to them well they, they certainly don't look medieval when you look at them no, i, I no. thought it was some sort of uh, charcoal uh, burning type of no. setup when i first saw That's it right but it's clearly just a very very efficient way of getting a pile of rocks to stand on top of each other yeah. and yeah. Uh, and and create a, a a sturdy structure which is you know some of these things are the best part of a thousand years old 
Um, so let's move further on in the journey then, because um, it's it's very difficult to sort of pour over a map uh, when people are listening uh, on their uh, their earbuds, as it were. So, uh, what about getting across the ferry from here, and where are we off to after that one? Yeah, so we're we're now about to start what for me was always going to be probably the most exciting part of the whole journey, really. Um, so we've got a little ferry here, another f- same very similar ferry to the one before. It, cost a couple of quid to go across took about an hour and a half something like that so i'm now traveling from north uist across to harris and i first visited north harris as a teenager when i was 14 and um it probably was one of those life-changing moments really it was uh, it was quite an experience i had no idea that such places existed and uh, i mean it wasn't a straightforward trip at all there was uh, it was a camping trip with a group of um uh, other school children run by an organization called the schools hebridean society which unfortunately is no longer uh, no longer operating but these fantastic adventurous trips for for school kids to these really remote places so um yeah it was one of those trips that was either going to completely dampen the enthusiasm or wetten the appetite and for me it was it was definitely the latter um and harris i mean you can see just the character of the map it's a very different sort of landscape we're now onto a much more rugged uh much more sort of corrugated landscape lots of lots of small hills and uh sort of small ridges a real roller coaster landscape to walk through more contrived in some respects because unlike these very straightforward ridge lines on the uists certainly the south harris hills that we're looking at at the moment route finding uh yeah quite quite challenging really Ooh. so um yeah no, uh, uh, definitely a place to uh to, to to take to take care test your navigation yeah certainly. well that that's that that's right so um, but it all went uh, all went well enough but another day of, uh, of 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 pretty pretty stiff northerly winds so another chilly day not not hands and knees i don't think but um one of the joys of the south harris hills is sort of working across them is you start to get views of the north harris hills which is where you get to see the biggest of the uh, of, of 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 the the hill um, sort of massifs really on on the outer aisles, so that's a real kind of crescendo in terms of heights and height gain, um, and they're all really hard one hill. I mean, we'll come onto that um, shortly, but um, so yeah, onto onto South Uist, start to get views across some of these gorgeous beaches, which are the classic sort of postcard images of, uh, of, of the Western Isles, um, Luskin Tyre and Celebost Beach, and then across the Taranzay. So we've now got the North Harris map out. Um, how is it going across this landscape? Well, this is without question, and I knew this was going to be the case, this is the hardest walking um, and scrambling, really. Some of these ridges involve a bit of sort of low-grade scrambling, really, but fantastic remote part of the outer hebrides really really rough walking um the highest hills and definitely somewhere to go and explore um 
just spoilt for choice in terms of really, really nice wild camping spots, um, both in the hills and, and, and down, down at the coast. And did you actually, I mean, looking at it, I could see it being popular from if people could act, have access to it, because there's a lot of scope there for a whole variety of activities. But did you actually see anybody else? I mean, you mentioned it earlier on that there were cyclists, but when you're actually out in the wilds doing the, the walk that you did, um, did you see anybody else enjoying the same thing? Uh, very few. Uh, in South Uist, I saw a couple of people up in the hills, uh, chatted to those, and they very kindly uh, then visited my Just Giving site and <laughs> made, a, made a sponsorship donation. But, uh, but no, but it is one of the, one of the joys of this, this, this area. That these hills are hard won in terms of hill walking. So um, it, it, it was no surprise to me, really. This section, the North Harris Hills, that I, I really had them to myself and if you you know you can see this map, can you imagine what that's like? Mm-hmm. You just you can just go wherever you want and have the most kind of remote wildland sort of experience that uh, that you want. Yeah, so that was that was North Harris, and then getting to the final northern yeah. most northerly point, and then the last the last sort of day was um, was the approach to um, the butt of Lewis, which is the very tip. Of Lewis, um, as you can see, the contours relax somewhat. So the north of of Lewis is uh, an area of of blanket bog and just internationally um, known for the quality of blanket bog habitat. Um, and uh, you know, bird watchers would just be so envious of uh, <laughs> of a lot of the nesting birds that I saw as I was going through here. But uh, yeah, so the final the final sort of push um how are you feeling when you knew it was you know once you've got past this uh, this previous section with all those hills <coughs> and all activity and all the work that you've i suppose the reward was the fact that you've got a downhill stretch now almost were you sort of despondent and it was it was all coming to an end you could see it no, no, that's, a, that's a good question but no not not at all i was just so chuffed to have finally after all these years got round to doing this trip I was very pleased that I'd done it in a way that meant that I'd finished with nothing more than a couple of achy knees and a few blisters. So I'm very pleased that I managed to look after myself. And with, with you know, a solo trip through landscapes like this um, in a style that I chose to adopt, which was, you know, to, 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 to take it on as a run rather than a, a walk, it could have been really quite easy to have turned an ankle really sprained a knee badly or 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 even worse so just in a way i suppose it it is a little bit like telescoping out um one of these adventure race events just finishing is is a pretty pretty good thing to have done to finish in in one piece oh so you finished the most northerly point there but lewis it was a simple practical question did you just jump on a bus to come back again? How did you actually get back to Oban? That's exactly what I did, really. Um, no, I, I got to the butt of Lewis sort of late afternoon, and I found somewhere um, uh, somewhere to camp, which um, actually was in the in the shelter of a of a, a thing used for dipping sheep. Uh, it's a very exposed part of the world, the butt of Lewis, and uh, I needed a bit of shelter for the tent, and that was all I could find. So fairly. Um, but I did have a small bottle of whiskey to celebrate the uh, the end of the trip, so that was uh, that 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 was quite nice. But yeah, six o'clock next morning, I jumped on a bus, uh, and the bus took me to Stornoway. Then I jumped on another bus, then another bus, two ferries, and another bus. 
And by tea time, I was drinking pints in Barra again. <laughs> so the journey back was was so straightforward. It, it, it was it was a dream. And you're looking at, I mean, obviously, you're looking at the landscape again from a completely different angle and going, I've done that. I've just, I've just walked across. I've just run across that. Absolutely. And the road section. So obviously, I was thundering along these sections of road in a bus and I was looking at just, just a couple of days ago, I was cursing that tarmac as I was pounding yeah. my poor aching feet up there. But no, that, that was nice, actually. I'm, I'm very happy that this trip, the, the, the return, uh, it is actually pretty straightforward because it's nice to be able to get that out of the way in a day. And as I say, by tea time, I was sitting outside chatting to a few folk uh, who donated to my just Good. I hope everyone listening to this has, has the same inspiration. That's very kind of them. Uh, I had to buy them a few pints, though, so there's, uh, there's a bit of a, I have to offset against that, I suppose. But no, that, that was nice, actually. If the, if the return journey was something that, that took... It could have taken a long time. It would really have taken quite an edge off of how great it felt to finish this this trip. Mm. So I was very very pleased about that. Well, certainly, I think uh, we've covered the, uh, the 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 trip in nice detail there, and certainly people can uh, have a look at your uh, have a look at the links, have a look at the photographs, the video, and obviously we'd like them to contribute if at all possible to uh, to the John Muir. Uh, but a lot of people would also be interested in talking perhaps in a little bit more detail about gear uh, and the safety aspect because of the way they approached it and the fact that it was quite remote. So certainly, the first question would have to be because it was remote, and you obviously you know, a bit iffy in places with the weather and things. How did you cover yourself as a just-in-case as regards, you know, mobile phone signals, spot system or or whatever? Did you have anything in mind for that? Uh, nothing nothing major, I'd have to say. Uh, the, the mobile phone, well, obviously I had the mobile phone, the signal was really patchy. Um, so there, there was more of the trip without signal than with signal. I didn't really have anything any anything else um i was quite happy that i could i could uh sort of follow the route okay um so i didn't have any kind of gps or anything like that so it's just good old map and compass um navigation and that 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 worked um so no nothing nothing to i was perhaps i was just assuming that i would Stay out of trouble. <laughs> I think it'd be also but, uh, worth <laughs> worth adding to, to, to people so they understand you are actually a mountain leader. You yeah. you do have qualifications and you have a considerable amount of experience yeah. uh, in this area. So it's not as if you were putting yourself in a unique situation. No, I think that's that's a good point. I, th- I think um, there was there was nothing about this trip that would be unusual to me in terms of terrain. Um, weather challenges navigational challenges um so I, I i always felt that i was and i knew that i would always be within a within a, a good margin of safety so i'd always have lots in reserve if something something did uh, did go awry so yeah yeah, yeah good find out how easy it is to subscribe to all our free programs Visit our website at theoutdoorstation.co.uk or look us up on Facebook. 
Okay, so let's look at the three systems then. You've got your sleep system, you've got your shelter system, you've got your cook system. Um, very briefly, unless there's something of note you want to mention in detail about any particular item. So what was the shelter system? Shelter system uh, was a Nordisk Telemark 2, um, just the lightweight, not the not the ultra lightweight, and just the best tent, fantastic. Um and I've had that for a while, um, and I know from experience, I mean, that's one, as I was saying to you before, all of the kit that I used, I've used lots and lots and lots before. So I I'd, I'd, I'd had already worked out the strengths and weaknesses and limitations uh, of, of, of all the kit that I, that I took, and the kit that I decided to leave at home as well, of course. Uh, but the Telemark is, is an extraordinary tent, um, but it's a tent that works best if a lot of care is taken over how it's pitched. So um, I could quite easily spend half an hour paddling around like a, like a puppy in a dog basket, you know, looking for just the right spot to get the tent in a sort of position where it would perform in the way that Nordisks say that it will, you know, in a, in a strong wind. But it was always... Uh, time very well spent because once it's up and you're inside it's it's going nowhere and then you can just be very happy that you've got a good shelter for the night whatever the and and as i showed you on the map you know most of the most of the camping spots were 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 a long way up the hill how did you find the condensation in it because i've got one of those and i've suffered a bit from condensation i know a few people have as well um it wasn't an issue and the only times that I've had an issue of condensation with that tent in particular is when it's been been really cold, mm-hmm. and so you're you're creating a lot of heat, and it's just condensation on the bathroom mirror, isn't it? You know, you, you create the heat, you create the moisture, um, and I do cook inside the tent quite a lot. I know we're not supposed to do that, but I but I do, um, and even with that, um, most of the time I can't say that I've ever had a significant condensation issue uh, with with the, the telemark. Good, okay. So let's move on to the sleep system then. Yeah, well, that, that's all very straightforward. Uh, it's uh, an original Mountain Marathon Mountain Raid, uh, it's a 1.6 or 16. Oh, gosh, uh, so that's a quite a light bag, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a, it's a good bag. Um, what I've also got is the Mountain Raid jacket. So if um, because the fill in the Mountain Raid jacket is almost identical to the fill in the sleeping bag to put the jacket on put the hood up get in the sleeping bag and the the upper so my my core is essentially inside two mountain raid bags really really toasty fantastic because that's a um primaloft isn't it it is yeah primaloft gold i think it is yeah Yeah. and then the sleeping mat is um that i use as a thing called a climite which is uh, one of these things which is it's like a series of um, inflated sort of tubes. Yeah, so I was, I was, the other way of looking at it is it looks like a um, uh, an airbed with lots of holes knocked it in does, it. It does, it does. And you look at it, and, you, and the one that I've got is, is a sort of three-quarter length, yeah. and it folds down to a thing the size of a ping-pong ball virtually, and it weighs nothing. And you look at it and you think, how on earth could you get a decent night's sleep on that? But you can. Oh, well, that's that's interesting. I've, you're the first person I've spoken to that's used one, so I'm interested, yeah, really, interested to hear that. Really, really, really good piece of kit. 
And then down the back of the rucksack is uh, is a duo mat, the OMM duo mat, which you never leave home without one of those. And then that just floats around the tent. Use that for everything. And then when it's time to to go to sleep, that goes under the feet. And um, yeah, never had any problems sleeping uh, at all. Okay, okay. So that's the sleep system. Um, Cook system. Uh, really simple. My favourite stove of, of all time. Well, I took two stoves. Um, one was the little Vargo Triad, the little titanium um, disc thing with uh, with its little windshield, and it's just the best stove I've ever ever owned. Fantastic. And I think I did the whole trip on one and a half. Of those Trangier, what what size would the big Trangier? The the red bottle, the red, this, this red a safety ones. bottle. Uh, the the big one's five hundred. Five hundred. So one and a half of those um, meths. That's that's what I used for the trip. Mm-hmm. And then the other stove just slid down the back of the um, down the back of the rucksack. Was uh, was a honey stove. Okay. And I used that a couple of times. Um, Sometimes just because it's nice to watch a fire. It's caveman TV, isn't it? It's just great sitting there poking sticks in a little fire and drying your socks over the thing. And uh, you can also boil some water on it as well. So, so that's pretty well, that's good. good to hear. That was t- yeah. I presume that's the t- titanium version, was no, it? No, 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 it's not. Yeah, it's the old, um, it's, the, uh, oh, nice it's the, the big heavy one. But, and uh, how did you light the um, light your stoves? Was it flint and steel? Or? Yeah, flint and steel. Yeah. So um, this, this little trick, actually I, what I also had was a little, uh, so there's the safety bottle with the fuel in it, the Trangia safety bottle, then a little sort of plastic um I don't know how you describe it, like a kind of little cosmetic bottle almost, like from Muji, um, little little squeezy thing with a... Or the little tippet on the top. little tippet yeah. on the top. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, uh, I'd, while I was sort of poking around, uh, you know, getting the tent ready and everything, I'd just decant some meths into that, put that in my pocket. Um, so that's nice and warm. Heats so, the meths up, yeah. Yeah, it heats yeah. the meths up. And then, um, so just drizzle it into the uh, the little Vargo. One or two goes on the flint and steel, and it's and it's well, away. Yeah, brilliant, excellent. Yeah. Okay, and what about pot cozies and that sort of stuff? And yeah. you know, pans. Did you take a whole variety or no? No, no. I've got um, the MSR Titan mm-hmm. kettle, so I've got uh, that with a pot cozy around it. But all, I've made this thing with lots of duct tape and the usual sort of Heath Robinson thing. So the whole thing is enclosed um, in that, and then inside that. There's obviously the stove, the windshield, um, uh, the Titan kettle uh, on all of my stoves. Uh, the first thing I do is I take the handles off because uh, uh, I just pull them off and get rid of them because they're, they're never any good. They always get too hot um, and they sort of get in the way. But what I've got is an old Trangia pot grip and I've cut the, cut the arms off it. So it's a very short, stubby thing with a bit of string around it. Uh, and that's perfectly adequate for lifting up um, the stove, so that goes in the in the the kettle as well, and I've got an MSR titanium cup mm-hmm. in there, and one of these folding spoons, the spork, the titanium spork thing. So that's all all in there, and a and a J cloth just to stop everything rattling around. Um, and then the other thing I've got is um, a Nalgene bottle. What's that? It's about a 500 ml Nalgene bottle. And I've made a cosy for that out of the pot cosy material. Um, that's one of the best things I've ever invented, I think. <laughs> I'm, 
It's just such a brilliant piece of kit because you just, whatever the food is, you put it in the Nalgene and then you put the water in. You shake the thing up and then uh, you leave it for a, a little while. You occasionally release a bit of pressure from the lid. but uh, So the pot cosy does its job of essentially sort of simmering what's in there. Um, it doesn't matter if it's porridge, if it's pasta, if it's like a f- kind of freeze-dried meal or something. Just shove it all in there. Um, so you can eat that out. Then when it's washing up time, you just put some water in the Nalgene, give it a good shake, throw it out, and the thing's clean and ready to go. And it's the best way to make custard as well. It's so so you, you put in the hot... This is a wide-neck Nalgene bottle. Am I visualising the right thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah it's, so. it's not the really... It's not the huge one. It's the same sort of diameter as the Trangia safety yeah. uh, um, bottle. So it's that sort of diameter. So it slides down into the rucksack really nicely. It doesn't take up too much room. Um, and, it, and it's really cheap as well. So after a few, after a, after a while, the inside of the Nalgene does get a bit... Um, Skanky, I think it, is the technical yeah, term. Yeah, it doesn't matter how, how much you scrub. It, everything just tastes of cup of soup and, yeah. and something else. So... So it's not going to break the bank to replace the Nalgene. So you keep the the pot cosy thing, uh, the sleeve. So you, uh, yeah. So, but why would you why would you do that rather than rehydrate the food inside the pot cosy in the pan and eat out the pan? It keeps the pan nice and clean. Okay. Uh, so there's no washing up of the pan. This is what I say: washing up uh, never amounted more to more than it doesn't matter how grim the aftermath is in this Nalgene thing. It could be cake and custard and all sorts of mess in there. Just throw some water in the Nalgene, give it a good shake, and then throw the the dregs out, and it's sort of clean enough, ready to go, really. So I didn't have to take any kind of washing up liquid, any um, washing up sponge Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Scrapers and sponges and all the other things that sort of add up. Yeah. Okay. Right, that was interesting. That was really interesting, which automatically leads on to, you said you took enough food to cover you mm. for um, sort of every few days. Well, no, having said that, you were buying food, weren't you? I was. The first couple of days I took some um, sort of freeze-dried, sort of mm. dehydrated um, stuff. So that, that lasted me for a couple of days. And then I was on to just sort of pasta, pasta sauce, um, lots of uh, peanuts, peanut power um uh lots of cakey things mm-hmm. so you can't go wrong with a pocket full of cake on the go all the time um i'm just thinking the bulk and the packaging when you pick stuff up from the the, yeah. the shops well what i what i kind of got into the the habit of was buying so i'd buy a bag of pasta and then i've got a few uh sort of polythene bags kind of freezer bags in in the rucksack and then i'll just outside the co-op or the or the little uh, corrugated tin shed that passes for a sort of post office shop in these places. Yeah, I just put handfuls of pasta in the um, in the freezer bags and just secrete them around the rucksack. Um, and yeah, there'd usually be a little bit of divvying up of stuff into plastic bags and things, um, and little bags of peanuts and and sweets and things. Um, and then dispose of the obviously the, the the packaging and so on while you're actually still uh, outside the supermarket. Yeah, yeah, okay. that, that's that, that that's that's right. Which leads me nicely on to ask you the rucksack. I presume from what you were saying, it was the OMM rucksack. Uh, yes, it was OMM the Adventure Forty Five. Um, and I added to that the 
MSC, the lightweight compressor thing on yeah, the back, yeah. which is really, really useful. I wasn't sure that it was going to be that useful, but it was. Um, all sorts of things got stuffed down there. So, um, yeah, really, really good rucksack. Okay. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, briefly, then, clothes, just to give us a rough idea, unless there was something specific you want to talk about. Wet and dry clothes, anything else? Yeah, well, I had um, the my shell was OMM stuff. It's the Cam Leica. Um, made of this gelatinous material, which is just very, very effective. Um, so that, and I, I, I also had what other stuff? I'll tell you what I did have, which was uh, well, first of all, can you just confirm you had obviously what you were wearing when you were doing the the run? Oh yeah, and then you presumably had a, a dry insulation layer, and was that it? You didn't take anything additional apart from that. Well, what I I had um, running tights. So three-quarter length running tights and um, shorts, they were on all the time. Um, and uh, no, no pants. Oh, <laughs> you. <laughs> you rash. Oh, what a devil. Was that a bit more information that we all needed? I'm not too sure. <laughs> no, they, they stayed in the rucksack. They were for, uh, they, they were nightwear. <laughs> for emergencies. <laughs> yeah, they, they, were, they, were, they were in my sort of going out clothes. <laughs> Just in case I got lucky. <laughs> yeah, in case I had some company. Uh, anyway, moving swiftly yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so just just running tights, which are just great. I mean, they just they get wet, they dry out yeah. really quickly. Um, and I had one one base layer that I ran in, and that was a long sleeve base layer. And then I had um, a base layer top and bottom for that I would change into. Uh, in the tent, uh, which is one of those small things that you do that you know is going to be a great bit of comfort zone stuff, you know. So um, getting into the into the base layer, so tent up, get the little Vargo doing its thing in the in the vestibule of the tent, change the base layer, and just happy days. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. very good. And then I had a couple of um, in terms of the insulation layer. Uh, I had a couple of primer loft uh, things. So there's um, there's an arm mountain raid waistcoat. That's that's a that was a very useful piece of kit. But in terms of the sort of shell, you, one thing that I used a lot was a wind shirt. Mm. So I'm doing a wind shirt, which is just just paper thin, mm. and uh, very 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 useful piece of kit. You're obviously an OMM fan then. It's just good stuff. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's good. It's good kit. Um, well, it's certainly the adventure racing pedigree, isn't it? So, uh, in globally crossing, looking across everything, um, I think you have touched on this already. But two things: best bit of kit, worst bit of kit. I think the best bit of kit, is almost certainly the stove. A little Vargo triad stove is just extraordinary. Worst piece of kit. Oh, actually, one other thing that I use is a pair of Mountain King. Poles. Oh, I was going to ask you about poles, yeah. yeah Which ones? The, the Trailblaze carbon or the alloy? No, the alloy ones. And just astonishingly good. Because I've got sort of crumbly knees, and they're, they're the pieces of kit that didn't work so well, really, the kit and the knees. <laughs> and I think if I hadn't have taken the poles, I probably wouldn't have finished the, mm. the trip. I th- it would either have ended up taking me too long, because I would have had to have walked more sections or i would have just 
had too much too much pain um and they are just a great example of very very minimal kit it's they are just right aren't they mm. they're just right and uh so yeah they they would definitely be in my sort of two or three bits of um bits of very 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 effective kit and yeah the poles actually now I think of it they made the trip really mm. well i've certainly found from experience and it's not an age thing i think people are listening to this have never used poles you should just try them just once in the company of somebody that's used poles and then make a decision after that rather than making an assumption because mm-hmm. it makes a massive difference. And it's not so much, um, although it does obviously makes a difference to the day, you stop looking down, you start looking up. Mm. But long term, it increases the longevity of your of your hobby, really. Yeah. I, also, um, they also help with, um, with navigation in, in, in a way because there were some sections uh, of the route where, so counting paces... So if you're familiar with that technique, so you're counting double paces as a way of monitoring your distance. And with a pair of trekking poles, you you get into a good sort of metronome sort of routine on that one. And um, it it helps. Mm. It helps to just keep a tally and keep a consistent pace as well, which... um, which at times was was necessary for for the way that I was uh, you know um, navigating my way along the route. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, it's been a fascinating uh, conversation, and I'm sure I, you know, it's going to have a lot of people looking at uh, the information, the videos, and the maps, the maps of danger. <laughs> but one final question, one final question, which I always like to chuck in, which is going to throw you probably for a second. It's been an interesting trip. Um, you've obviously raising money for a great cause, and there's been a lot of pleasure you've had from it. Of all the things I could have asked you about the trip, what should I have asked you? Um, what should you have asked me? Um, did I miss not having any company? Uh, and the answer would be no. Not that I'm a, a recluse, but it's just one of those areas where savouring that place on your own is, is worth doing. You know, and it's and it was nice to have the opportunity to just take a few liberties with time as well. To just say, I really. Uh, so we were talking about Brochs, and there are a number of archaeological sites um, that I spent a lot of time sort of looking at. So I took a little GoPro camera with me, tiny little thing, and uh, I, I took quite a lot of film just for my own um just as a souvenir really of some of these really sort of enigmatic little archaeological spots out in the middle of nowhere and um i quite enjoyed the fact that i could in i could savor the moment on, on my own um but having said that it was great to see you know friends and family when i got back but um yeah and i certainly don't i i don't regret doing the trip and i would recommend i would recommend anybody to have a go at this sort of multi-day uh you know adventure yeah definitely my thanks to david broom and of course our executive producer mark cole for their contribution to this couple of podcasts please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk for all photos uh, video and links for items and things discussed in this particular podcast 
In the next couple of productions, we catch up with Rose following her week on the Pennine Way with our Springer Spaniel Pip. And I take a walk on the local Malvern Hills with well-known wild camper Martin Rye and discuss his passion for the pastime in much more detail. If you've got this far in the podcast, well, thanks very much for joining me. And please do remember, if you get a moment, to drop by the website soon and join our newsletter section. I can assure you, you won't be bombarded with emails, but as our evolution develops, you won't want to miss out on the big news either. So I'll leave you with this appropriate comment from John Muir. Keep close to nature's heart and break clear away once in a while and climb a mountain or spend a week in the woods. Wash your spirit clean. Bye for now. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To hear or see more from our extensive free library, please visit theoutdoorstation.co.uk. Thank you.